Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We have our first customer conference at Hypergrowth SF on November 18th. You can use my code BUILD99 for a discounted ticket at hypergrowth.drift.com. Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have our head of design, Tim O'Brien, on the show to talk about what actually happens when we know what we're building, we're done with story time, but we have no idea what the solution is. Thanks for having me. Super excited. (laughs) Great start. (laughs) It's going to be hard. (laughs) Okay, so we have gone through the one pager. We have done the story time. We have developed our open questions as a team. At the end of the story time, we've assigned those open questions to everyone. And then we hit this thing that we call the organized phase. And that's when the teams get together and they figure out, okay, what are we actually going to build? What is it going to look like? Are we solving this problem the right way? And we kind of go from this seemingly crisp problem definition into kind of like a messy divergent space. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the hard things is that the organized phase doesn't start with like converging right on the next step. And so it can feel tough to pause after this moment of like, we just converged on the right problem to go back to divergent mode. But that is definitely usually the next step. That's as, that is if the story time has answered enough open questions to start. And that totally happens all the time, right? Where we're like, we just have to go answer questions mm-hmm. and really like, we're going to put this back into story time rather than like go start like traditional design mode. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the time, depending on how well understood the problem is and how big of a problem it is, we'll have so many open questions that you almost cut the story time off. Right. And you say, we actually can't go any further because what we need to do is go get some more data, talk to more customers, bring that information back, and then reevaluate the problem. Yeah, and actually one of the things that Drift does uniquely well is that because we have developers in that story time, some of the open questions can just be technical constraints. And definitely places I've worked in the past have made the mistake of trying a design solution and not knowing the technical constraints and having the project fail for that reason. Right. And so because we have the developer in the room, you know, sometimes the next set of questions are going to be like, let's just go like evaluate technically what realm of solutions are possible and then we can start our design phase. Right, which is what we call usually a tracer bullet. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's right. I think sometimes we call a tracer bullet like after we've made a lot of those decisions, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like, yeah, can we actually achieve this thing, especially because your story times have some definition of time frame, like how much time is worth investing. And so a tracer bullet can help us say, you know, this thing's gonna be huge. It's gonna take like a couple months versus like, oh, this is just quick. We can iterate out in the wild on it. Mm -hmm. But I think what's important about it is that when we leave a story time, it's not that just the designer or the design team goes off and into a dark corner and comes up with some sort of prototype, it's the whole team. So the PM will have data questions, customer questions to go find out. The designer will have design questions. And the engineers will have meet technical proofs of concept. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, it is a little bit muddy sometimes. And so like really great teams, I think, figure this out, like when the designer should really start putting pen to paper and creating like that first prototype or that first set of prototypes. But you can see teams trip up on this all the time where they have too big of open questions left to solve. They start a design phase. And in design land, we'd call that like you haven't really like settled on your constraints. And so you really want to know when you're developing a range of solutions, like really what are the limits of this, uh, both technically uh, from a business perspective, like I was talking about, like how much is this worth investing in? But also from customers, like not every problem needs to solve, solve, not every project needs to solve every problem for every customer. So if you haven't defined kind of your customer 
for this problem, that can be like a big constraint. And you see teams fail all the time because the solution they produce is too generic and not opinionated enough. Right. So then with design specifically, let's say one a member of your team leaves a story time, what do they do to oh. answer the question? Because <laughs> a lot of the time uh, in the story times I've been in, we were in one earlier or last week, and the one of the kind of open questions was, what does it look like? Yeah. You know, yeah, what yeah. could this world look like where we have this, we've solved this problem? Sure. So yeah, a bunch of different tools, but really coming down to two phases, divergent thinking and convergent thinking. So the first thing that you do, you know, and some designers short circuit this all the time and skip the divergent part, but you want to just generate like a bunch of different solutions. Sometimes people will call that whiteboarding. If you've been in like a whiteboarding session with a designer, that's kind of what they're trying to do is like short circuit that divergent phase and kind of like, let's just come up with a bunch of different possible solutions here. And that can be like an actual like sketch of a prototype, but that can just be like deciding like, okay, we're going to use email to solve this problem, or we're going to like use an in-product announcement or something like that. And so you do some divergent thinking. And in general, again, that's a, that's, you're trying to decide on a constraint, like what form is this going to take most likely. And then once you've done that, you're going to try to converge and come up with the solution. And within that, designers do a bunch of iterations on that. So they usually have a, a first pass. Sometimes designers will use like sketching to do that first pass. By sketch, I mean not the software, an actual uh, pen and paper. Uh, and then they're iterating and they're trying to do problem solution fit. So they're basically trying to decide, is the solution that I'm proposing going to go fit the problem that we uncovered in story time? And then those iterations hopefully aren't going to take your developers time. So designers produce prototypes for this reason, right? So they want to produce something that approximates their solution and then they want to go put it out into the wild. In our case, that's called usability testing and see like, is in general, is this thing solving the problem? never going to be perfect accuracy. There's always going to be stuff that happens uh, post-launch that you didn't think of right. always, unfortunately. But that's, in general, what they're trying to do is improve the accuracy. Like, did my solution hit the problem? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to remember that at this point in the process, we have already done the work to know that this is the right problem to solve. Yes. Which I think gets a little muddy when we think about, you know, this theme that's been going on in the podcast for a while, which is doing more discovery and, you know, spending more time really understanding what the problem is. Some of that, a lot of that will happen well before we get to this phase. Yeah. And discovery phases can have a designer doing what looks like design work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a thing that people get tripped up is like they'll uh, use a word like waterfall uh, to describe a ritual like story time. But really, uh, you can have done like what looks like an agile cycle or like uh, just a cycle on uh, in the discovery phase before you even. Uh, but at one point, you make a decision. You say, right. like, this is the problem we're going to go attack. Mm -hmm. And we're going to kind of advance our validation of that. And so, you know, back in discovery phase, you were probably doing thing, more things like interviews and surveys and talking about concepts and probably every once in a while producing like a prototype. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, really to invest the designer's time and invest that researcher's time, you're usually on a more narrow problem set. Yeah. Um, and really what you're looking for is solution problem match. And so that's a really good point is teams get tripped up when they're in this kind of definition or delivery phase and they're like, let's go back and, and figure out a new problem. And it's like, well, that, that can lead a little bit to chaos. You yeah, because, yeah, theoretically, the team has committed to the problem. Yeah and, yeah, and like together, you know, right. in the same way that they commit to the solution during this this very like cyclical phase or mm -hmm. this iterative phase, at the same point, you know, a really great team, a really empowered team will have done that in the discovery phase as well. Right. And so then the outcome of the organized phase is a kickoff. 
Yeah, and one thing that I want to note is that like the the difference between the designing and the discovery phase and the um, definition phase is that the designer has to go talk to the other designers. So once you get to a design team, this happens all the time. Is like you have these empowered teams that are working in silos, and they produce these solutions that individually or discreetly work, but unfortunately like the user logs into one application and they don't know your org structure. So I call that like you show your org structure where you like go to the different yes. screens and you're like, oh, uh, that must have been Kristen that designed that. <laughs> that must have been Akil that designed yeah. that. Whereas like the idea is that you're like, oh, you're using Drift. So there is there is this tax that happens as organization grow, organizations grow where uh, the designers need to kind of combat that, we call that like UX debt, of having multiple designers solve pretty similar problems in different ways. So if you think about like creation workflows or delete workflows, like within a particular application, they should probably work pretty similarly. Mm -hmm. And so in the discovery phase, like those prototypes really don't have to keep those things in mind. But like when you're about to build something, like you have to like go check, like have we solved this problem before? Have we used a control before? Like are we using a drop down for this? We're we using a select uh, and go like reconcile those differences. That can be frustrating because like, you know, your team has to like go talk to other teams. This is probably not the first time, but one of the first times where they've really had to coordinate. And that can be a tax. And unfortunately, that's the role I have to play all the time is like slow down, go talk to this team and it's a tough role to be in in a very fast moving environment, but it is really necessary. Yeah. Otherwise you get to this point where like, you know, your users, your actions are meeting their expectations because they go screen to screen and, you know, right. they don't really know, know what they're doing. Yeah. And I think we actually had this week a really powerful example of that type of thinking where 1 p.m. Dan, hey, if you're listening, was working on one problem. I was working on another problem. We realized that those problems in the near future will overlap and we didn't right. know what the plan was. Right. So the two of us, the two designers and you all got in a room and we kind of mapped out what could this look like in the future so that no one's stepping on each other's toes and we all have a coordinated yeah. vision. Yeah, correct. And like early stage products will usually start to run into this thing. Anytime you get to like a dashboard or like a mm -hmm. global nav or a settings, <laughs> like those are your, your normal problem areas uh, where you go look and you're like, okay, wow, like it's clear that the you know conversations team did this. Um, yeah. And that's, that's pretty natural and like a result of moving quickly. And uh, a great design team works with their uh, product managers to combat that using things like design systems. That's a pretty hot topic right now. It's really the reason for a lot of our rituals. So we have like a design crit on Tuesday. That's where a designer has to show their work to other designers. That's not only for quality of the solution, but for reconciling differences. And then they have, we have what's called a design lab. We don't sit together, some design teams do, but we just spend three to four hours a week on Thursdays just just sitting next to each other doing work so that we can kind of happenstance, look over each other's shoulder mm -hmm. and say like, you know, in your example, like, hey, Kristen, like, in Akil, you're, you're working on something pretty similar here. Yeah. Like, we should probably collaborate on, on this thing. We try to do structure that in a way that we don't have a checkpoint where a design director or a senior designer can, like, kill a project and say, like, you can't launch this because it doesn't match. We try to do that in a way that works with the speed of our teams and is kind of just-in-time feedback. Because a lot of design teams will, like, they'll lock that down, right? They'll have a big phase where you have to, like, go present to some big yep. stakeholder. Yeah. I worked at TripAdvisor. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, those meetings were legendary. Uh -huh. I mean, produce some really consistent work, and it's, yeah. a, it's a good and a, a great way to produce that. But, you know, there, there are um, ways that we're trying to do it now that kind of do that just in time. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point about as we scale, when we get into this phase, figuring out how to not have those moments where a team goes, oh, shit, 
this other team is working on that thing. Can I ship this thing? Where do we, how do we like move forward together right. without just shutting each other down? Yeah, yeah. And if you can answer that question, like, you'll be the most famous design director of all time. Like, that is the that is the question. Like, oh, that is? Go empower a team to work exclusively, independently, but also produce work that looks like it was made by the same person. Great, amazing. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you solve that so, problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be great. Okay, so then while we're in this organized phase and we're doing research and then we're kind of iterating on what the solution would be, what are the the sort of principles that you have your team follow? Sure. So we, we call these design principles at mm-hmm. Drift. They're posted on the wiki. There's three of them, familiar, conversational, and opinionated. And so that's just guidelines for how we want to design product. So to take one like familiar, our founders state that when they say innovate, don't invent. But from a design perspective, what that means is that if there's something recognizable, some way that people do this out in the world, like we don't want to come across as kind of like alien to them and say like, hey, we have this novel way of doing this thing. So innovate, don't invent, I think applies to this phase as well as when you're deciding what to build, which basically says like, if it's out there and it works, like start with that as the baseline. And then if you really need to, you can innovate on top of that, but definitely start with the baseline. I think really great design teams have these design principles so that they can, when they're evaluating solutions, just share a common language on things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in general, like we use this stuff during crit and we use this when we're talking about our solutions to not only make sure that they're solving the problem, but make sure that they're solving it in the drift way. So for example, opinionated, what we think is that every feature in drift should have a default that it should be powerful enough to work for the customer uh, however they want it to. But it should have a default that says, this is the best way to do it. We Mm -hmm. know because we're the experts. So the kind of paragraph that follows opinionated is, we should know because we've talked to customers, we understand our space, and we're deeply embedded in their problem that this is the way to solve it using Drift that most people have found success with. And then we let people kind of customize as they want to. But we don't want to just present them a blank slate and say, hey, what do you want to do? Like, you can kind of do this however however you want. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's the same way that writing a one-pager with a blank sheet is harder than picking up someone else's one-pager and editing it. Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. Imagine if like, when you got to Drift, it was like, we don't have any opinions on how you be a product manager. <laughs> like, that's hard, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Okay, so then what about tips and tricks that you're helping your team with in this space? Yeah, so we talked about one of them, which is like uncover your constraints. More design projects fail for this than any other reason, which is that super late into the process, you find out that either technically you can't do this thing Mm -hmm. or because of a business reason you couldn't do this or someone made this decision. Like you have to go slow to go fast in this phase more than a lot of different phases. So yeah, uncover those constraints, ask a million questions. I think in open questions, I would love it. I don't know if I track this or not, but this would be cool to track. I would hope that the designers formulate a ton of open questions during story time. I want them to be the most. Is that true? Um, Not. Usually. Oh wow. Okay. We should well, work I, on that. Yeah, but I don't know. I think it's it's interesting. I think it's because our it's the chance for. I, I think a lot of the open questions that a designer would ask gets asked by tech leads, because it's their chance. It's sort of like in a story time. It's the engineer's chance to do sort of design thinking in some ways, which I don't think they spend much of their time doing because they're writing code. Yep. So it's like they get to be part of the design process and they should be part of it. And they're part of that open question development. So they usually have tons of open questions. And then the designer will come in with sort of like the key. They come in with like the heavy hitting questions, I think, a lot of the time where it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's a really good point. You yeah. really need to understand that thing. Yeah. Whereas an engineer will ask. 
20 questions. Yeah, Drift tech leads are really good yeah. at asking questions yes. uh, and, and being part of that phase. So maybe I I should give them more credit yeah. than that. But yeah, so <laughs> uncover a bunch of, of constraints. Yep. And then I wrote down like share a lot because I think, I, again, I'm thinking about reasons that design projects fail and that's mm -hmm. like, really late into the design process, you find out that someone else has designed a solution this way, or perhaps they've even built this feature, which is really embarrassing to say, but like sometimes like when you're at a big enough company, mm -hmm. like you kind of don't know every intricacy of what your product can do and like, oh, you can accomplish this using this other method, like that's pretty embarrassing. So one way you can do that is by asking a lot of questions. Another way you can do that is if you share your wireframes, you share your whiteboard sketches in, we do it in a Slack channel, but if you do that in a design crit or even in a weekly email to your fellow designers, they can proactively tell you like, hey, this looks a lot like this other solution or hey, this looks like a lot like this other feature, you should go look at it. So share a lot, other designers, other PMs, like having a ton of eyes on this at this point in the project is gonna solve you a lot of, or prevent you from feeling a lot of pain. Later. Yeah. Yeah, I always think about how in the, so we also have Slack channels for each product team that's working together, and that's the product manager, the designer, and the engineers. I always think about the Slack channel that we share is always most active during this phase. Mm. Because it's if you're heads down building something, it's a little bit quieter. But if you're in the organized phase and everyone's answering open questions, everyone's tossing like, oh, I went and talked to a customer and this is what I learned. Or like, oh, I found some role models. This is what it looks like. This is how they did it here. Hey, I actually, as a PM, I went out and found some pricing and packaging examples. This is what it looks like. Or an, uh, an engineer saying, hey, I did a tracer bullet. Like, it's actually not possible. Yeah. Or if we did it this way, it's going to take us 100 years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that that's great. I draw this for designers a lot. It's three concentric rings. It looks like a bullseye. And that Slack channel with your team is the first ring. So it says like that should be the most communication. It needs the least context. Like mm -hmm. here's exactly what we're doing, deep conversations. But then there's these other two rings. And the reason why I draw them that way is you need to think as a designer about how do you broadcast your solution or your ideas further out into the company mm -hmm. because you're responsible for more than that that team's communication or that team's problem definition. So usually with a design phase, that next ring out is the design function. Like that's things like design crit. But the reason that we post in a public Slack channel, it's just called design and there's I think like 200 people in it, is that we need to broadcast out to everyone in the company like, hey, here's what we're doing. Uh, because there are people like sales engineers, for example, that are always in design that have great feedback for us or like, hey, we use this hack. And so I want them to be thinking about, like you're talking about, the intense communication with their team, but also how do I produce artifacts and tell a story mm -hmm. to the broader audience that brings them into what I'm doing as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And then the next tip that I would talk about is about feedback, which is, you know, kind of the crux of what a designer is, needs to be good at doing. They need to be good at getting and giving feedback to one another. Like I used to usually joke that like designers just get made fun of professionally. Like that's their job for a while, which is like, hey, do you like this? And everyone's like, no, we do not like that. <laughs> Every redesign in the world starts from like another designer's work getting made fun of, right? Yeah. Um, That's how I was measuring my time at Drift was being here long enough to have it be the my fault that yeah. we're redoing the thing that we're working on. And I crossed that threshold and that was kind of a sad day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> someone was like, what is this? And it was me. Right. And you're like, no, it was made by smart people. Yeah, no, no, no. We had a reason I, that I don't remember, but I'm <laughs> assuming we had a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the best designers can get feedback from a wide variety of sources. You know, they can get feedback from engineers. They can get feedback from uh, PMs and uh, other designers all the way up. A lot of designers get early exposure to executives for this reason. Like they put their work on display, you know, at something like a, a leadership 
team meeting. So you have to really get good pretty quickly at receiving feedback, and you're not always going to be in control of how that feedback looks or feels. So you know, some design teams they try to like coach other people at giving feedback. I try to coach a design team and say, really, it's gonna you're gonna get feedback from so many sources that like you're gonna have to go find the good in all of the feedback rather than trying to coach everyone to give you the exact feedback that you want. Some designers, like there's there's these articles that go around that say like how to present your work to get the right kind of feedback. How, do you, how are you just strong enough and how do you feel confident enough that you can kind of get that really brutal feedback that, you know, it's just like the word this sucks, like that, that can mm -hmm. be great feedback maybe not great, that can be feedback, to like the really intricate design level feedback that's like very considered of the audience receiving it. I think it's really just useful for a designer to like figure out a way to, you know, be able to get all those different types of feedbacks. Uh, it can be really painful, but. Yeah, I think that also it's not just design. I think it's also the engineering team is also answering open questions and coming up with solutions, and they have their own technical review process that they go through at the same time. Yeah. So at the same time that the design designer might be off doing what you're talking about, uh, the tech lead or some of the engineers might be off writing a technical one-pager on their approach to the problem. Right. And I've seen some very direct feedback uh, yeah. in that process. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. And I think that the, the two functions have a lot to learn from each other yeah. in terms of, like, it is, like you're saying, both part of this same phase, like let's decide on the best solution for, for this problem. Mm -hmm. Engineering, doing things like a technical one-pager that gets critiqued, that's pretty unique. Not every team here even does that. And definitely not every company like has an engineering team like put their, their work on display like that. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like design teams don't usually document their approach as well as engineering teams do. And so we have a lot to learn from engineering with that technical one-pager process that yeah. says, we could probably produce a better artifact that describes our solution. Um, you know, sometimes we'll just have the sketch file or the prototype, and there's yeah. not a lot of extra to it that describes the why or mm -hmm. the, um, the particulars of the how. Yeah. Um, so that's a really good point is that, I mean, I work on design, so I talk about design a lot. <laughs> but there's definitely a lot to be learned about, like, what other people are doing during this organized phase, for sure. Yeah, I just think it's important to remember that it's not just design. Yeah, oh, right, it, that's right. kind of like the thing that we all think about because it's so visual a lot of the time. Yeah. But everyone is involved in the in the answering of open questions. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so then what what should teams avoid doing? Sure. So kind of the opposite of some of our trips uh, tricks, like don't go dark. So there's like that classic design persona of like the person who is going to like come up kind of like the Mad Men thing, like I'm gonna go get drunk for a while and then randomly come up with the best <laughs> solution, uh, like with this great client presentation. Don't do that. Like, you know, same like you're talking about with the uh, technical one pager, you could just like go like code up something great and be like, here it is, right? Mm -hmm. But you're going to hit one of those constraints. You, you just are that you didn't think about. So although that feels good to just be like, give me my time, like I will figure this out, like make it a team sport. It's so, like you're talking about be in that channel, be engaged with your engineers, be engaged with your PM and make sure that you're talking a lot. And then the second thing is just on that feedback, like you're going to get it. So like, you know, <laughs> don't take it too personally, yeah. right? Like you're not going to be right every time in your career. Um, so I think one of the things that people can do is they can put their kind of self-worth or like they make it their project rather than mm. a solution. Yeah. It's somewhat inevitable, but like as much as possible, if you can figure out a way to like present the work discreetly from you and critique the work, kind of be outside of it, you know, you're going to have a better time and you're going to be inviting more feedback. You're going to allow your counterparts in engineering and product to have a more open conversation with you because they're going to know like, 
I get it. I can just, I can be honest about the work and I'm not going to hurt Tim's feelings. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about if I have any any experience where my feedback was really not well received. Oh, yeah. yeah. They talk to me all the time about you. Oh, great. <laughs> I just know that Kristen finally told me to stop telling her to put things in a nav. <laughs> <laughs> good, good for her. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of to wrap up all, all the stuff about this phase, it's a little bit hard to say, oh, here's a 10-step process to the organized phase because the whole point of it is divergent thinking and then converging on solutions, validating it with customers. Like, you have to talk to customers, you have to talk to engineers, you have to like get data, the PMs involved, designers involved, engineers involved, we're all involved. And there is sort of like chaotic, messy magic to it yes. that sort of like at some point coalesces into a solution. Yes, Craig is training a new PM right now, mm -hmm. and she asked the question, like, how do I know what the best minimum lo lovable solution is, complete solution is? Right. And he's like, please tell me. <laughs> and he's been doing this for 20 years, right? right? It, yeah. it is, it, there's so much art to it. It's probably why you have a podcast about it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just a hard problem because everything that comes in, it's not a factory, right? Where like the, the input is the same. Every input is different. There's mm -hmm. no project that has the same constraints, that has the same objective. And so there's no way to really apply a template to this phase. I think that there's just principles to it that you can expect a team to operate. And then, you know, you kind of I think that's the point of retros is you look back, you try to learn from the last time you did it and just make it a little bit better. And it's it's definitely the reason why I think we promote teams working together over a longer period of time. Um, you know, we, we love those teams that work together for a year, two years, because they develop their own version of this in mm -hmm. a lot of, that hopefully follow the same principles that the company does. But, you know, they, they have a different definition of what, what does the PM do? What does the designer right. do? And that's okay for them to innovate. We, mm -hmm. you know, I usually say like, play the sheet music and then like go for sure. improvise yep. afterwards. We got into a discussion about this this week, right? Yeah. You didn't say play the sheet music, for the record. <laughs> I came up with a better analogy. Straight, straight improv, improv, improv? Improv. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. It's you Friday. gave me feedback and I, I, <laughs> I iterated on my, there we go. <laughs> there, look at this. Yeah. But, you know, that's why it's hard to give advice is that, like, some of the best teams that I've seen, like, they just have their own very weird process that yeah. works for them. Uh, and you can't kind of say, like, this is how I would do it for every team. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you develop that shared language, and then you've been through so many experiences together that you can point to them and say, oh, let's not do it like we did it on this project. We got to do it like that project. And then you have this kind of shortcut that you can take that helps you go faster. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So I guess if we were to wrap up what to do in the organized phase, it would be talk to customers. Yeah, always. Like, their feedback's going to trump any boardroom, mm -hmm. leadership room feedback. It's Yeah, that's the shortcut. Yeah, right? just spend as much time talking to customers, yeah. iterate as fast as possible, share everything as much as you can, and then have a high bar. Have a high bar. You have to, right? Like, yeah. the one thing that, you know, we can often ignore here is that, like, you have to have a team that really wants and cares to do good work because this stuff is painful. Not being right on the first try is painful. Having to go back and redo something that you put your heart into yep. is painful. But if you can just be want to be proud of your work, you know, and, and try not to let that bar, bar slip, even though sometimes that's going to, you know, cause a lot or ruffle a lot of feathers. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate you coming on the show. This is the best part of my week for sure. Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> Everyone who's listening, leave Tim a review. Give him six stars. He's amazing. We love working with him. And he's hiring. We're hiring. Come work with us. <laughs> I wouldn't say all of my self-worth is going to be based on how many reviews we get, but a, but a big a portion. Non -zero <laughs> a non-zero amount. A non-zero amount. Perfect. And with that, we're out. <laughs> <laughs>